0: Hi, this is Karin Zesis of ASCOA Online. February marks a year since the first COVID-19 cases were confirmed in Latin America. And since then, the virus has claimed more than a million lives in the region. Now, the pandemic has entered a new phase, one in which countries are trying to roll out vaccines as quickly as they can, even as variants threaten those vaccines' efficacy.
1: So we are encountering a problem where nobody is safe until everybody's safe, basically.
0: That's Dr. Rosalind Lemus-Martin, a COVID-19 researcher with a PhD in molecular biology from Oxford University. She spoke with me about vaccine rollout strategies in Latin America, as well as transparency and efficacy questions, particularly in the cases of Chinese and Russian vaccines. But first, we hear from Pierre Van Hedegem. Who heads the Brazil mission for Doctors Without Borders? He spoke with my colleague, Luisa Horowitz, about what he is seeing on the ground in Manaus and the Amazonas region, where a variant has contributed to an outbreak with tragic consequences. Thank you for joining us.
2: You're listening to Latin America in Focus.
0: Latino America in foco.
1: America Latina in foco.
2: A podcast by America Society Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region.
3: Hello, Pierre, and welcome on the podcast. Thank you. So, Pierre Manaus has had another health collapse, and an overwhelming portion of the population was infected last year which had people assume important levels of immunity. But now there's this issue of a new variant. So you're in the middle of it all in Manaus, Amazonas. Tell us what the conditions are like on the ground and what's going on and why does the situation stand out?
2: Yeah, so, so maybe just to frame a little bit where we are, eh? So yeah, I'm currently in Manaus, but we also have projects in the interior of uh, Amazonas State, in, uh, in Tefé, in São Gabriel de Cachoeira. I can share with you what I see from from these three places. I don't have the complete overview, of course. Basically, what what we're seeing today is well, there's a complete saturation on the level of secondary healthcare, hospital level in Manaus, and. Basically, this ripples through the whole system, whether it is in Manaus itself or in the interior of the the Amazon. Because these hospitals are are completely saturated, these are also the hospitals which offer the best level of care in this state. And so, for instance, in Tefe, we are are in a general hospital uh, in Tefe supporting um, the health authorities over there. And... Tefé Hospital relies on the um, possibility to transfer patients from Tefé to Manaus if they need a higher level of care. Today, very often, this is really difficult. There's uh, a lot of waiting times. The system of uh, referral in, in Amazonas is mainly by, by plane. Eh? Uh, these places like São Gabriel, like Tefé, you can only access it either by boat, either by plane. And so, so the, the transfer of patients is always by plane. And so because of the fact that Manaus is so saturated, we are keeping patients in those places who should not be there uh, because we, we cannot give the same level of treatment. They don't have the same chance of survival. Just as an example, there's there's no dialysis uh, capacity in Tefé, for instance. As soon as there's a a risk of kidney failure, uh, the patient needs to be transferred to Manaus. And at some points, we had patients who would have had a chance of survival if they were if we would have been able to transfer them to the capital, and those patients died basically in the hospital, they could have had a chance of survival if we if we could have sent them. So, so the situation in Manaus is really—it's not only the problem of Manaus; it's the problem of the entire state.
3: I see. So, it seems like one of the biggest challenges is this issue of transferring patients.
2: Oh, it's it's, it's one of the issues. <laughs> There's many more issues.
3: How about the issue of medical supplies and lack of resources? How do you face that challenge?
2: Well, medical supplies, it's specifically oxygen. It has been a lot in the media lately, The, the, the lack of oxygen production capacity in Manaus, all the production capacity that was way too low to meet the actual needs. Today, just two weeks ago, the need for oxygen in Manaus, exceeded three times the production capacity so this is of course a huge problem especially with covid you have uh, people in respiratory distress need of oxygen you have intubated patients so so the, the lack of oxygen is a huge issue uh, again i'm go- i'm gonna go back to to the interior of uh, of the amazon where in tefe up to in, today in sao gabriel they have, they have a, an oxygen plant in the hospital, but in Tefe they don't. So basically what they need to do is they need to send oxygen cylinders by boat to Manaus to get refilled, then go back by boat. This is 500 kilometers by boat. Huh? So just logistically, it's it's quite a challenge. And then if, if they arrive in Manaus and there's no production capacity, yeah, yeah, you cannot fill them up. So our teams on the ground have been facing... Uh, continue, they're, they're always at the limits of uh, what they have in terms of uh, oxygen, uh, sometimes less than a day buffer, not knowing if there will be more oxygen coming in or not. So you can also imagine that the, the level of stress that this puts on the medical team, it's, it's quite incredible.
3: Yeah, definitely. And is there, you've touched on this a little bit in terms of the difficulties in logistics, but is there something specific to the Amazon region that you might compared to neighboring countries that share this region that makes containment of the virus particularly challenging.
2: I don't know about containment. One of the things is there's, there's huge inequalities in Brazil, for instance, also in terms of number of available doctors, number of available nurses. There are some states where you have a lot more doctors and nurses, and then you have states where the, the availability of medical staff is way lower. So also in terms of human resources, this poses a huge challenge. So yeah, you, you you could add beds at some point, but if you add beds, you need to add your oxygen capacity. You need to be able to have medical staff to attend to the patients. And today, this is this is a huge issue. I was I was in in the biggest public hospital of Manaus last week, the twenty eighth of August hospital, and I was talking to the doctors. And basically, what you see is pe- people are completely exhausted. They are exhausted. They're doing extremely long shifts. They have been doing this now for a long time. They continue because there is no choice, but they're so overstretched. Um, and so this is what actually also one of the reasons why we decided we decided to start uh, mental health supports for the staff in this hospital. It's it's a huge hospital. It's uh, three thousand people working in this hospital. Uh, and so basically, we set up a, a mental health support for just for the staff. We, we often forget in, in in which situation they are as well. There's of course a huge impact on the patient, but there's also a huge impact on the on the medical personnel.
3: Definitely, and that that's so important. And since you started this mental health program, let's say, have you noticed a betterment, or have you noticed any differences?
2: Uh, we just this this we just started a couple of days ago, huh? so so this is really new. We already started this before in in Sao Gabriel de Cachoeira and in Tefé next to our uh, more medical activities. And what we see is that the demand is huge. The demand for psychological support is really huge.
3: Wow, that's very very interesting. I feel like it's not talked about as much, but definitely it, it raises the question as to how other places could. Can also make sure that this is a focus, right? So moving on to my next question, Pierre, we're now seeing that countries are beginning their vaccination campaigns in the hopes to mitigate this pandemic on mass levels, right? And Brazil started its own in January and Sao Paulo is where it began. What do you recommend as the first step to combat an emergency like this? Is it vaccination or might it be something else?
2: I, usually in, in an outbreak... It's the whole package. Huh? You need to have proper surveillance. You need to be able to detect your cases, to, uh, to identify your cases. So this means that you need to, for, for COVID, you need to have appropriate testing and also the testing capacity. You, you need to invest in preventive measures. We're talking about public health measures. And then, of course, there's the whole case management, uh, the, the, the treatment of the patients, the beds, the staffing, and and vaccination. Vaccination is a part of your, your preventive measures, but it's definitely not the only one. Try to look at it from a more holistic perspective. Huh? But yeah, vaccination is definitely an important tool. So vaccination has started. Um, then there's, of course, the issue of, of availability of vaccines. In some places, uh, like Sao Gabriel de Cachoeira, a population of 40,000 people, they already received 19,000 doses. And so the first jab is ongoing, but in other places it's a bit slower and it will take some time before we start seeing the effects, because we also know that you need the second dose for it to be most effective. There's also the time for your immunity to build up after you get your vaccination. So there's always a delay before you start to see the results. The same thing as we see with, for instance, public health measures up until a couple of weeks, they were not Many public health measures that were actually either enforced or visible in the in the streets today, this has changed in in Manaus. Shops are closed, restaurants are closed. There's very little movement in the streets, uh, and we see the same thing in the interior in Tefé in, in São Gabriel de Cachoeira as well. But there is always a time needed in in order to see the effect of uh, of those measures, and this there's not one magic measure. Eh? It is it is the entirety of these public health measures, of the vaccination campaign, of awareness campaigns. It's all this together that, that might have an impact at some point.
3: Certainly. It's like you say, the whole package, definitely. And moving on to my last question, Pierre, what lessons do you think other countries or other cities in the region should take away from what we're seeing today in Amazona? <laughs>
2: Good question. The thing is always with outbreaks is you need to be as early as possible. Uh, if you want to avoid getting into a situation, um, but if it's very difficult, it's very difficult because an outbreak, it's, it's it's an exponential increase of cases. And you might think for a long time that, okay, it's quiet. And, and then suddenly you have these spikes and it's quick quick reaction there's a lot you can do also to to prepare for a new wave in terms of uh, at least for for every hospital to have a plan uh, linked to okay if if i will have covid patients where will i put them how will my patient flow be who do trainings in terms of infection prevention there's a whole there's a whole bunch of things that you can do actually to at least to prepare yourself. It doesn't mean that you will completely control it. But yeah, in terms of continuous awareness campaigns, um, in terms of uh, preparedness in hospitals, there's definitely things to do.
3: I see. Well, Pierre, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. And I wish you success and best of luck in the coming weeks.
2: Thank you very much.
0: That was Pierre van Hedegem talking with Luisa Horowitz. Now we hear from Dr. Rosalind Lemos-Martin about what new information on Russia's Sputnik vaccine means for Latin America, as well as why the region's vaccine rollout is in a race against time. Thank you so much for being with me, Rosalind, today. You have a a great Twitter feed where you share lots of threads with information about vaccines, particularly in Mexico, um, but informative threads with information about all the things happening with vaccines and variants and concerns around coronavirus. And one thing that you tweeted a few days ago that I, I thought was great was you wrote, and I'm translating from Spanish, We shouldn't really care where X, Y, or Z COVID vaccine was created or produced. What we should worry about is safety and efficacy. Now, we've seen Latin American countries have acquired vaccines from from several countries, but there's been some debate about transparency and efficacy in the case of Chinese and Russian vaccines. And I want to talk about uh, the Russian vaccine first. So, Argentina, Bolivia, Paraguay, Venezuela, and Mexico are among the countries that have either approved or secured contracts for Sputnik, but initially there was concern given a lack of clinical trial information. We've had some new news though, so I wanted to hear from you uh, what was published in The Lancet, what have we learned about the Sputnik vaccine, and what does it mean for the region?
1: Definitely. I mean, the the news about the publication in Lancet are quite good for Latin America because, as you mentioned, different countries have acquired Sputnik. So what is published in the Lancet is basically the results of the clinical trial that was performed in different clinical centers in Russia. And it states efficacy of 91.6%. So that's really good efficacy is in the range of Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And also it states in the paper that the vaccine is safe. So only sixty around 60 participants in the study, they had an adverse effect. And it was not only the people in the group of the vaccine, but also the people in the group of the placebo. So that's quite good. So it's a low percentage of people having a secondary effect and a secondary effect that is not a big secondary effect is just like the normal secondary effect that any vaccine has. So that that's quite good. So that in general, we can say that the vaccine is safe and effective according to the Lancet. And I mean, we just need to wait for the approval of the different regulatory offices in Mexico and in other countries in Latin America, but then it's good to go. I mean, I will say to, to people, especially because in the study they include people over 60 years old, So that was a concern, but now it's not a concern anymore because the efficacy was not reduced considerably in that uh, group of people. So that's good. It's good for uh, people over 65 years old and it's safe and effective for all groups.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting because I remember um, not long ago seeing a photo of President Alberto Fernandez of Argentina getting the the shot in part because of concerns in Argentina about whether it was safe, as you said, for people who are above a certain age, above 65, I think, I believe, and, you know, to try to restore some of that confidence. And that's something I'm wondering about. I mean, you know, this does raise this issue of confidence in vaccines and transparency around vaccines because we've had now some long period of time where people are waiting for more information about the clinical trials. And all of this gets blended with anti-vaxxer discourse um, and, and concerns about confidence. What can be done to restore that confidence? How can and how can people communicate and get the information out that no, this is safe. Yes, we need to get vaccinated.
1: Yeah, so definitely this is a good step because this is what many people were waiting for. They they were skeptical because there were no results published, but now we have the results published. So now I think scientists and and opinion leaders and and different people that are communicating this to the public, I think our responsibility is to communicate what is stated in this paper, that the vaccine is safe, that vaccine is effective. And not only this one, but the, the previous ones, because even Pfizer and Moderna, they have they have a good efficacy and then people are still doubting them because we see all over the news people saying oh we had 20, 21 uh, 29 people in Norway dying from the vaccine so I think as communicators, as scientists, as uh, medical doctors I think the responsibility is to really communicate this to the public and, and answer the questions that they have uh, accurately and simplify all the information in our social networks or writing uh, columns, uh, writing op-eds about so I think that's a second step. But this is definitely, this is, regarding Sputnik, this is a, a, a good step. And I think um, continue is the next one to follow, especially for Mexico. Once they publish the results, I think people are also going to be more confident about getting that vaccine.
0: So CanSino, for example, that's a that's a Chinese vaccine. We have more than one Chinese vaccine in Latin America. We are seeing Chinese vaccines being uh, rolled out in, in Brazil and Chile as well. Um, and there have been some concerns about the efficacy of Chinese vaccines. Can you talk a little bit why there is that concern in the case of the Chinese vaccines?
1: Yeah, in the case of cancino, in particular, for example, was the result that they published in, in Lancet as well for phase trial two. They showed that there was a some kind of um, decrease of the immune response in people over 55 years old. So that was the main concern. But obviously, once they publish the results of phase three, then they can basically, if the results are positive and there, there is not a decrease, then obviously that that gives confidence to to this group of people that especially in Mexico because this vaccine the president plans to apply to to to, to aim it to people over 65 years old so so that's why it's important that that people that are going to be vaccinated with these two vaccines are sure that the vaccine that they are being taken is safe and effective in their group so I think it's important to wait for the results of CanSino. They, they, they performed the clinical trial three in Mexico. So once they finish with that, I'm, I'm sure they will publish it. And, and I mean, they, they, there is also another Chinese vaccine, Sinovac, that it was not very transparent, sadly. And then when once they were transparent, the efficacy was slightly over 50%. So it's still good. I mean, still the minimum for the WHO, but it's not as high as somebody would have expected. So that is an example of why transparency from the beginning is important.
0: Mm -hmm. And that Sinovac is the vaccine, the Chinese vaccine that's being used in Brazil. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's the the Chinese vaccine that is being used in Brazil. I mean, it's good to start with, to start vaccinating uh, certain groups and start vaccinating and starting the rollout. But definitely Brazil needs to have other options as well.
0: Now, you're sitting in Washington and I'm here in Mexico City and I hear a lot of people when I, I talk to people in the United States complaints about vaccine rollout in the United States. But it's hard not to be impressed sitting here in Mexico and looking at the fact that at the time of, of recording this conversation, over twenty-five million people have been vaccinated in the United States. It just seems like an astounding undertaking. And In Latin America, we are not seeing, obviously, that rate of vaccination. So in Brazil, about 2 million people have been vaccinated. And in Mexico, it's only about 700,000. And now, along come the variants. So even as many Latin American countries are facing these unprecedented case counts, we now have these more contagious and potentially uh, deadlier variants. It certainly feels like we're in a race against time. So, how do you see the scenario? What makes you the most optimistic in this moment as you watch vaccine rollout in the United States? And what makes you pessimistic about what comes next?
1: Yeah, the thing that makes me pessimistic is basically the appearance of the new variants, because we're seeing, like, with these, specifically with these variants, and there is one that has a mutation that is called E484K. That mutation, in particular, is concerning to to many scientists because that means that we are going to take longer to achieve or to get herd immunity. If before with the previous variants it was predicted that we might possibly get it this year, at the end of this year, beginning of next year, with these new variants, it's going to take us a while to get that herd immunity. And in the other hand, also the percentage of people that we need to vaccinate to to achieve herd immunity is going to be higher. So we were speaking about 70, 75% of the population needed to be vaccinated. Now with these new variants, people are speaking about 80 to 85%, or even 90% of people need to be vaccinated to achieve that herd immunity. So we are encountering a problem where nobody is safe until everybody's safe, basically even if people are vaccinated, the new variants are putting them at risk. With this particular mutation I'm talking about that is a variant from South Africa. It's been studied, even Moderna published some results about it, that the neutralizing antibodies get diminished by six-fold. So, we are going to encounter the problem that people are going to be reinfected, even with a vaccine. So that's what is worrisome. So we are raised against time with a mutation. It's not mutating as fast as other viruses, but it's still mutating to avoid the effect of of the vaccines. And then we have to develop new vaccines or modify the vaccines that are, are being developed already. The positive thing is that the vaccines were developed really quickly. It was like historic event that vaccines could be developed so quickly. And then new vaccines, the mRNA vaccines are opening a door for new treatments, even for cancer and for all the diseases and for all the vaccines. And then it's going to change the way that we develop vaccines. Now we know that if we encounter another pandemic in the future, we're going to be prepared to develop vaccines really quickly. And that is positive. The problem is that it's not only the fact of having the vaccine, but it's also how we vaccinate people. We're seeing many countries that they have the vaccines, including the US. But then the problem is the rollout of the vaccines and the strategy of the vaccination. So that's why it's important to take as an example, Israel. Israel is a very good example of how we should make vaccinations in other parts of the world, because they they managed to vaccinate like over 50% of the population vaccinated. So there are positive things to still learn from the vaccination. We still have to do it faster because
0: we are in a race against time. I want to get back to good strategies on rollout and, and containment in general. But one thing that I want to talk about is COVAX. So, as we know, this is a system that many Latin Mar- American countries will reap some benefits from. Can you explain COVAX to our listeners and how Latin America will be affected by it?
1: Yeah. So, COVAX is um mechanism that was developed with this aim to try to help countries that are having issues with vaccination, like getting vaccines or uh, getting vaccines distributed in their countries, is not only about poor countries or developed countries. It's for every country that is in this mechanism, this initiative, they can have access to vaccines if they are not having vaccines delivered to their countries. We're seeing problems in the European Union, for example, problems in Latin America, problems in Mexico, problems in Brazil, problems in Argentina. So this mechanism is good because it's going to assure that countries are going to get vaccines in a timely manner. Not every country is in the list. Mexico had to sign a contract to be in COVAX and paid money. Let's say they pay money ahead. So it's not for free, but when they need it, they can access to the vaccines that COVAX has. So they, they have already signed contracts for billions of doses with AstraZeneca, with Johnson & Johnson, with Novavax. And then let's say they have that in a storage for countries that they required. Not immediately, but they, they can have access.
0: Now you are Mexican, and so I can't help but get a Mexico-focused question in here. Although I think that what I'm asking about will pertain to strategies in other countries as well. If you woke up tomorrow... And you found yourself in charge of Mexico's coronavirus strategy, particularly as we're watching vaccines roll out. What are some of the first steps you would take? Let's suppose that I'm in charge of that. I will make the rollout more
1: homogeneous. The problem in Mexico is that it hasn't been homogeneous. So there is no electronic system that allows people to know which specific population or how many people from certain groups have got the vaccine. So... I will make everything electronic, everything digital to have a better control of how many doses have been applied, how many doses we still need. And from the beginning, even before, I wouldn't have waited until December. I will have started making agreements from the beginning when pharma companies were in a stage two, even stage one trials, And I'll have made sure to have uh, got as many agreements as possible beforehand, because now we encounter situation, not only in Mexico, but other countries in Latin America, that they didn't make the agreement before, and now they have a timely pressure. You know, the example of Brazil as well, that they didn't care about it. Say, so, okay, this is not, maybe it's going to come later. And it's because many people thought, okay, maybe we're going to get the vaccines till next year. Something developed and approved. Everything was so fast. But I will have made sure that I had got agreements, enough agreements, for at least 75% of the population. And one last
0: question on that. You mentioned Israel, and is part of it due to the the digital way that they're handling it? What are other lessons we can learn from Israel, and also specifically ones that can be implemented on the ground in a region like Latin America?
1: Yeah, the lessons that we can learn from, from Israel, for example, I think it's interesting their case. So. They, they made groups that were simple to follow. And the problem that we're seeing in other countries is that they are making different variations of the groups and they make a, a big group and then make sure that ev- like all the population in that group was being vaccinated. So we, we're seeing here in the U.S. that the, the problem is that they're opening up more groups before they even finished vaccinating the other group, and Israel didn't do that. Israel finished with uh, like simple groups, and then they, we finished with this group, we go with the next group, and then that's why now they're in a position that they almost vaccinated 60% of the population. So, yeah, we can learn that from them. We can learn also that they made agreements with uh, some of the companies to to make sure to get data from them, like what kind of people were being vaccinated or the secondary effects in exchange for a timely delivery of the vaccines. So they got the vaccines delivered on time, they they got all the vaccines they needed, and they make sure that they have everything they needed to start vaccinating. Other countries, they haven't got what they needed, and they start vaccinating, and then, then they have to pause because they don't have doses being delivered. The case of the U.S. as well, that actually it was not enough of what uh, what they bought, it was not enough for, for to cover some of the population, and now they have to wait till June or till July to get more vaccines of certain pharma company. But Israel didn't do that. Israel made sure to have got all the vaccines they needed at once, and then started the rollout super fast.
0: Thank you so much for your time. It's been really interesting to get your insights. I hope that we do win this race that we, <laughs> that we, that we were talking about, this, this race against time and against variance. And I appreciate you joining me today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by Katie Hopkins. The music in this podcast was recorded at our 680 Park Ave headquarters in New York City. Find out about upcoming concerts online at musicoftheamericas.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Help us spread the word by giving us five stars, sharing, and subscribing at Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.